Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 28 that I have already read to you this morning, but let's go there and see the words before our eyes. Genesis 28. Though we could go a long time today on this great subject and all the details of it that the Lord has shown us, we shall not. We want to just rejoice in the fact that we we have a church and what it is and its glory and value and purpose. And we'll celebrate the uh, specific things that the Lord has done for this church next Lord's Day. In Genesis chapter 28, we find the house of the Lord. Those words that I read to you. In verse 17, Jacob was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. No wonder the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prospered so well by that last little clause that I read to you from verse 28. But that's not my purpose this morning, so that's all the attention that it gets. It's there. If you're wise, you read it, you believe it, you do it, so that you can be prospered like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to go back to the fact that the altar that he built at Bethel was the stone that he used for a pillow, the stone that he used for a bed. He built a pillar and poured oil on it. That wasn't a very impressive house of the Lord, was it? That wasn't a very impressive altar, was it? That wasn't a very impressive sacrifice, was it? Just a little bit of oil that he had with him on those stones. So that's the first, that, that is one of the first houses of the Lord that we meet with in the Bible. I've read to you about Solomon's dedicatory prayer, but now let's go over to the book of Haggai, toward the end of your Old Testament, and to chapter 2 of that little minor prophet. Haggai, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Haggai, that is Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, ends the Old Testament. The book of Haggai, the Jews have come back from Babylon. They're in Jerusalem. It's a pile of rubble. As I've said to you before, what does your yard look like if you were to take seven months off? What would a city look like that had been leveled to the ground by the Babylonians and left alone for 70 years? How big would the weeds be? 36-inch diameter trees. It had been a mess. And so God raised up two special prophets to encourage those regathered Jews to rebuild the city and the temple, and their names were Haggai and Zechariah. Those two prophets had very limited ministries, and that was to get the people building. And there's a lot that could be said from Haggai. They're very discouraged because as they pegged out the foundation of this thing, and they looked at those strings and stakes, they said, this is ridiculous. Because the old men among them were old enough to have seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. And so the book of Ezra tells us that there was a noise that went up of the young people shouting because they were going to build themselves 
the house of the Lord, the old men weeping because they knew they didn't have any gold or silver and the thing was so small compared to Solomon's. So they're discouraged. So here's the word of the Lord to them. Verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts by Haggai the prophet, Yet once, this will only happen one time, Yet once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this... (coughs) (coughs) The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Is that redundant to have the words, the Lord of hosts? That many times in so few verses? No. Not when it's Jehovah who is the Lord of hosts, meaning He's the general captain king of the armies of heaven, meaning the angelic innumerable host and army of the Lord. This once more I will shake the heavens and the earth. There's only one more change to worship. And that would take place when the desire of all nations came to this temple. What was this temple? It was the temple Zerubbabel built. This was the temple that Herod the Great added to. When did Jesus come to it? As an infant. As a 12-year-old. As a 30-year-old. There are so many people that think this prophecy is for some future date. But that temple, this house that I will fill with glory, has been ruined for 2,000 years. They are totally confused. This is the first coming of the desire of all nations. Do you know what we need more than the second coming? The first coming. For Him to die on the cross and make peace by the blood of His cross. These, these verses are some of my most, my favorite in the Bible. I have to say most favorite because I have so many favorites. But it once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Well, I've never seen the heavens and the earth shaken. Well, that's because you've never understood the prophets of God. They use cataclysmic language like this to describe a spiritual change. Have you ever said to somebody, the world's turned upside down? Did it really? Who turned it upside down? Did anybody fall off it? Did they lose a day? Were watches needed to be reset? But have you ever heard words like that? Of course you have. And that's all it is right here, is cataclysmic language used to describe a great spiritual change that was going to come in this second temple, and God would fill this second temple with great glory because the desire of all nations would come. And he says in verse 8, don't worry about the fact that you don't have all the gold and silver that David gathered for Solomon's temple. I already own all the gold and silver, and I really don't care about the gold and silver. The glory of this latter house, verse 9, shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. The beauty of the second temple was, in that place, God would make peace. And He made peace by the blood of Jesus Christ's cross when Jesus said, It is finished! And the veil was rent. He made peace. That temple... Then it was destroyed. So what do we have now? 
We have Jacob and a pillar of stones. He poured a little oil on it and called it Bethel, the house of the Lord. Solomon built one somewhat bigger, somewhat more glorious. Zerubbabel built another one. And it was another son of David. It was another son of David that enhanced Zerubbabel's temple. How did he enhance it? With his presence. One time when he appeared there and he found some money changers in his father's house, he got a little irritated. And he made himself a scourge and he drove those money changers out of the temple, knocking over their tables. And the, the Lord gave inspiration to the apostles to understand Psalm 69, where it is prophesied of this son of David, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So we're, we're talking about houses. But we have a house. Let's go over to, uh, where do you want to go? Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because that second temple, the one that God filled with so much glory while Christ was there and while Christ was alive, the last time Jesus walked out of that temple, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And then it was destroyed down to the ground. There weren't two stones left attached to each other. And he went into heaven, and then we have words like this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, the apostle, to Timothy, his ministerial understudy in a pastoral epistle, read these words. 1 Timothy 3.15, 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is a word for congregation. So when it says the house of the Lord and then calls it the church of the living God, it's referring to the congregation of God's people. It's not referring to a building. It's referring to the congregation of God's people and they are to be the pillar that long, st- that, that standing support and the ground, the foundation of the truth. And there we are today. So there was, let me go over it once again. There was the house of God at Bethel with Jacob pouring a little oil over his bedding. Then there was Solomon. How could you be better than Solomon? Well, the Lord took care of that with another son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ in Zerubbabel's temple, which was then leveled by the Romans in 70 AD. And he gave his kingdom to the Gentiles. And now we have the house of the Lord, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Thank you, Lord. What a blessing we have. Let's celebrate and rejoice in the good things God has done for us. By God's gracious addition to our membership, we have to be about the business of seeking new meeting facilities. In this distracting, necessary evil process, we want to keep our priorities and perspective in line. God chose to use the metaphors of a building for the church. So we've got all kinds of metaphors that refer to the building and the properties and the furniture and the fixtures. For those of you that were or are accountants, 
you know that on the line of a balance sheet on your asset side are buildings and properties, and there are furniture and fixtures. I remember at a very early stage in in uh, another lifetime that I used to do inventories on some of those things. And there's a line for improvements, and there's a line for depreciation, so that you end up at net buildings and properties and net furniture and fixtures. And you know, when you look through the pages of the New Testament, there's buildings and properties and furniture and fixtures of the New Testament church because God chose to use the metaphor and illustration of a building for His church and of a body. But today's not the body. Today's the building because the Lord's just arranged circumstances for us to focus on the building aspect today. There are wonderful terms for a church. Temple. We don't have the word temple here. We have the house of the Lord, but we have the word temple in several other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 3, we have the word temple used for the church. And a temple is a permanent, settled, fixed, beautiful, magnificent place to worship. It is, it is not like a tabernacle. He doesn't call the New Testament church a tent or a tabernacle because it is an impressive dwelling place for God to come and meet with His people. I know when we look around, when you look around this room, you say, these people? This pastor? You go out, you look around at our our peeling ceiling? That rhymes. Our peeling ceiling. Could God meet in a place like this? Oh yes. Oh yes. You go outside and you say, you're kidding. There's not even a steeple on this joint. Where are their stained glass windows? They don't even have a crucifix. They don't even have a baptistry. What kind of a Baptist church is it? Oh, brethren, we make up the body. We are the living stones of the temple of the living God. I know you know these things. You should be thankful that God has called you out of the world and formed you as a brick and stuck you into a wall of His local church. We're very blessed. And so we just want to consider some of those things today. You know, the verb edify is used often in the New Testament. Edify, edifying, edification. And a building is also called, and I've been over this so many times with you, but I want to teach you Bible words. I'm supposed to read distinctly and give you the sense. What does the word edify mean? It means to build a house. Build a building. Make a building. Construct a building. Edify. Construct a building. So when we edify each other, we are constructing a building. We are building something up. We are building a structure of the church. Because the church is not these four walls, and it's not this peeling ceiling, and it's not this worn out carpet. The church is the body of believers that are here. And when we edify each other, when we encourage each other, comfort each other, instruct, warn, rebuke, reprove, we are edifying or constructing a building. And so there's there's lots of terminology in the New Testament toward the end that we're looking at. One since I said three dispensations, look at Romans 5:14. Let me prove that to you before we run away from it. Romans 5 and verse 14. We do believe in three dispensations because the Bible distinguishes the time of the patriarchs from the Old Testament under Moses and then the New Testament by Jesus Christ and his apostles which we are in right now. Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. See, there's a period of time in which there was no law given yet. 
the law came by Moses. Moses was the mediator that brought the law of God down from Mount Sinai. So this is 2,500 years of time, which is the patriarchal age, or the dispensation of the patriarchs, when Abraham would build himself an altar and offer up sacrifices to God. He didn't. Need, he was his own priest. And so we have from Adam to Moses right here, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Verse 13 tells us, for until the law. See, that's till Moses. Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. When there is no law, there was a different way that God was dealing with men because they didn't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those didn't come until 2,500 years after creation when Moses wrote them. So there's the first dispensation from Adam to Moses. Then we go to Luke chapter 16. I hope that all my young men in this church will remember these verses and be able to use them in a time that God has appointed in which you will be challenged for what you believe. Luke 16 and verse 16. So there was the period of time from Adam to Moses when the law and the prophets wrote the Old Testament that guided the nation of Israel in their worship of God. But then we have this verse. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. So we've got these two events taking place. Moses getting the law of God on Mount Sinai. John the Baptist preaching baptism for for repentance and the kingdom of God being declared. So 2,500 years to Moses. 1,500 years to John the Baptist and his cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and 2,000 years to you and to me in the third dispensation of the kingdom of God. So that it says in Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Oh, the glory of the church. We have the patriarchs to Moses. We have the old covenant of Israel to Christ. And we have the New Testament church. God chose to be worshipped this way. It's not for convenience. It's not for organization. It's not for geopolitics. It's not for geography. This is how God wants to be worshipped. In small, scattered congregations around the world because it's no longer centered in that little piece of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. It is worldwide because the great mystery of godliness that is without controversy is He was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. By the grace of God, we're part of that kingdom. You should have goosebumps. And I don't mean from the chilled air. We are so blessed. Thank you, Lord. Let the Muslims pilgrimage to Mecca to kiss a meteorite. Do you all understand that? Mecca has a meteor. It's called the Kaaba stone. And they go there to kiss it. It's the most important part of their lives is to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. The fundamentalists, John Hagee and others like him, make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem that is in this world that is in bondage with her children when Jerusalem, that's the mother of us all, is in heaven. Who in the world wants to go to the Holy Land before their time? Be careful. You know where the Holy Land is? It's up there. Who's going to go commit suicide this afternoon to go to the Holy Land? The Holy Land isn't on earth. 
There's nothing holy about that place over there. He said, your house is left unto you desolate. He had called it my father's house of prayer in the first part of his three and a half year ministry. At the end of that ministry, he says, it's your house. I leave your house unto you desolate. And he tore it to the ground. Do you all understand that? Jerusalem, that is the mother of us all. Jerusalem, our capital city. Jerusalem, our Mount Zion, is in heaven. We're looking for the heavenly Jerusalem, just like our ancient father Abraham, because he knew that his home was not in this world. He was looking for a heavenly country and a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. Revelation chapter 1. John's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in verse 10. And he heard behind, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Oh, we're going to hear that one again. Yes, we are. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in verse 12, and there's seven golden candlesticks around him. Let me speak for a minute about this piece of furniture and look at the balance sheet of the house of the Lord. Do you know that it can be depreciated away? And taken away? The candlestick of our church. A piece of furniture that the Bible describes. Let me try to do this quickly because I have far too much on this subject, but let me try. The tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, the temple of Zerubbabel had a seven-lamped candlestick, commonly called the menorah. Menorah is not a Bible word, so you've never heard it out of my mouth before. A seven-lamped candlestick. The book of Exodus tells us how it was to be made, what ornamentation it was to have, how much gold, pure gold, was to be used in its construction and so forth. If you were listening carefully this morning when I read the second passage of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2, and Paul was listing the furniture of the old tabernacle, it had candlestick. Because there was this candlestick that was there that burned all night long. It was put out in the morning. It was relit at night. It burned all night long there in the house of the Lord in the first compartment called the holy place. And then there's the holy of holies that was second behind that veil that separated God from his people. You know, if you go online and look in a Google search box for the Arch of Titus, on that huge arch that God has preserved for 2,000 years in the city of Rome, this massive arch commemorating the accomplishments of Augustus Caesar Titus, there is the seven-lamped candelabra in graphic display being hauled through the streets of Jerusalem because the candlestick was ripped out of that temple. Okay? 
I've shown you that before. What does that candlestick stand for? Let's see if we can figure it out from the Old Testament. Let's try Zechariah chapter 4. There, right, right there by Haggai, remember? It's at the end of your Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 4. And this will be Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest being encouraged by Zechariah and the Lord about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah 4 and verse 1, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me. The prophet Zechariah, as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. I see a candlestick with seven lamps. Now as we keep reading down through this passage, notice what we have described to us. I'm going to go down to verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. This is the lesson from this vision, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. That was a mountain of rubble. Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace! Grace unto it! Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. So we have seven lamps on a candlestick, and we have seven eyes of the Lord that are the uh, seven spirits of God, but I'm getting ahead of myself, because it doesn't say that here, does it? It just says the seven eyes of the Lord that run to and fro through the earth to uh, oversee and see what's happening to God's people and to deliver them. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, is uh, the in-context explanation for the vision. So the candlestick represents the Spirit of God. Let's come back to Revelation and see if that's consistent with what John wrote down for us. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Revelation 1-4. We're talking about a piece of furniture of the house of the Lord, the building of God, the temple of the living God. A piece of furniture. We're working through the balance sheet. We will not be able to get a tally of the total assets because there's not enough time today nor next Sunday. But it's an interesting study. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before His throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now is the Trinity mentioned there? Is Jesus Christ mentioned there? The Son of God? The Word of God made flesh? Is the Father mentioned there? 
How is the Spirit of God mentioned there? The seven spirits that are before the throne of God. Okay, let's go to chapter 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Oh, I love to compare Scripture with Scripture, brethren. Now look at it. It doesn't say seven candlesticks and seven stars. It says seven spirits of God and seven stars. Did we just have seven candlesticks defined for us? Yes. The seven candlesticks represent the seven spirits of the living God. I know thy works. How does he know them? The seven spirits of the living God, that are the seven eyes, that are the seven candlesticks of the churches, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Chapter 4 and verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So now they're called fires versus lamps, or they're called lamps of fire versus candlesticks, and they're called the seven spirits of God. Chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, it is by His Spirit that He inhabits His churches, and that is why in every one of the letters to the seven churches, He could say, I know, I know, I know, I know Thy works. I know that Thou hast done this. I know that Thou hast not done this. I know. How does He know? The seven eyes of God, which are the seven spirits which are the, the Holy Spirit of God, the spirits of Christ. He has them. He sees everything. You say, why the word, why the number seven? How many reasons do you want? Seven is a perfect number in the Bible. Seven churches were addressed. Would you want to have him use eight? Would you want him to use six? How many spirits of God are there? One. Why are they represented as seven? Because there's one for each church. There's one out of seven for perfection to cover the entire planet in the Old Testament. There's a brother somewhere in here that like Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9 that says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those that fear Him. That have a perfect heart toward Him. So now we come to chapter 2. Much more could be said. I hope I've said enough. If you just track through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 and look for fire, lamps, candlestick, spirits, eyes, it just all comes together and it's totally consistent with Zechariah chapter 4. But now we we come to the church at Ephesus. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the blessed and only potentate, This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. John fell at his feet as dead in chapter 1. Though John knew him intimately, having, having laid on his bosom at supper over and over. He knew him so well, but he fell at his feet as dead because he's glorified in heaven. And unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that... 
holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know, I know thy works and thy labor. Do you understand that I can apply the verb and the subject I know to each one of these objects? I know thy works. I know thy labor. I know thy patience. I know that thou canst not bear them which are evil. I know that thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. I know that thou hast borne. I know that thou hast patience. And I know for my name's sake thou hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of, out of his place except thou repent. And he goes on to say something positive about them. And he says in verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And amen. Thank you, Lord, for that. But look at the warning here, brethren. There's a piece of furniture called the candlestick. What in chapter 1 and verse 20, look, the mystery is explained to us somewhat. Chapter 1 and verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Without any coordination between Matthew Eastland and myself, this morning the prayer was introduced with this text. Those angels, those angels, those stars, are the pastors of the seven churches that were getting the riot act read to them by the Lord Jesus Christ for what was going wrong in their churches that the eye of the Lord, the candlestick, the flaming fire, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the seven spirits could see that was going on in those churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We understand that to be the seven stars are the pastors of the seven churches represented by angels. It would have been hard for John to have mailed his letter to the seven angels because he didn't have their postal address and he didn't know Gabriel's email address. People get confused. Do you know why God used the word angel and not the word pastor? So that you would be confused if you don't want to read the context and easily understand what is described here. Right. Angels don't have responsibility for churches. Pastors have responsibility for them. Pastors are going to be held accountable if a church isn't doing what it's supposed to do. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Well, now, a candlestick is not the building. A candlestick is not the body. How is a candlestick the church? When we just read what we read about the church at Ephesus, the Bible, Jesus said, I will remove him. He used a personal pronoun for this candlestick. So it is a singular male person. And we've already read all those places. It's the spirit of the living God. It's the spirit of Christ. I will take the spirit out of your church. 
I will remove the candlestick out of your church. So when it says the candlestick is the church, it's not a one-for-one relationship. It's the candlestick of God, the Spirit of Christ in a church that makes it a real church that could be withdrawn to leave it nothing but an organization that still meets and most or all the members won't even know the difference because they would have been so carnal to have lost their candlestick, they wouldn't even know when it's gone. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, verse 5, and repent and do the first works, and that's what we want to do. We want to have a love of Christ. We want to press our love of Christ. We want to increase in our love of Christ. We want to enlarge our hearts. We want to seek for the days where we loved Christ the most. We want to repent for having lost some of our love of Christ. We want to press it from the pulpit. We want to press it in the pews that we continue to love Christ or He will leave us an organization without a spirit. As the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so a church without the Holy Spirit is ruined. Lord, have mercy upon us. There's so much more that could be said, but I want today to be a happy day. I don't want to dwell on this longer than we need to, but it's a, it's a reminder and a warning that the most important piece of furniture in the church is the candlestick, and that is the representation of God by His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the burning lamp of fire, the eyes of the Lord in the church, seeing, knowing, overseeing from heaven itself in our midst. Blessing us by His Spirit. This church, you know, and I don't hardly ever tell you junk like this, but in church history, this church disappeared in short order and was never found again. There were no believers in the city of Ephesus by numerous Christian historians that visited the place to find a single believer. Come back to... a the book of Ephesians. And I want to show you a little connection that I hope you might appreciate. Did did the epistle to the Ephesians emphasize the Spirit of God to this church that was going to get that kind of a warning from the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it say in verse 13 that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? Does it say in verse 17 that Paul was praying for them that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation? I'm in chapter 1. 117, does it say that? Does it say in 222, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit? So who lives in the church? The Spirit of God, representing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is here by His Spirit. Jesus Christ in His, in His, uh, God, in His combined dual nature, is in heaven. Because He's limited to one place in that body. It's on the throne at the right hand of God. But by His Spirit, He's here with us today. Those are the eyes of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ among His six golden candlesticks. It's in 2.22. How about 3.16? That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit. These are things the church at Ephesus did not have yet. They were already elect in the early verses of chapter 1. They were already born again in the early verses of chapter 2, but they needed more of the Spirit, 117, 
The church at Ephesus was a habitation for the Spirit, 2.22. They needed more of the Spirit, 3.16, to show them the full dimensions of Christ's love because the Spirit that is in the church is declaring and witnessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we can know that He's still here. If we're loving the Lord Jesus Christ and being moved by Him. Chapter 4, verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Did that come to pass? Whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. I find this most interesting to find that the Paul writing this church laid into them about the Holy Spirit of God. Match it with another epistle like this. 5.18 And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. 5.18 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. When the Spirit goes out of a body, we're dead. When the Spirit goes out of a church, it's the congregation of the dead. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21 and verse 16, let's not wander out of the way of understanding or we're going to spend the rest of our lives in the congregation of the dead. Lord, save us from that. You know, the church at Laodicea thought they were something special, but Jesus Christ said they were naked, wretched, poor, miserable, and blind because they didn't have a, they didn't have a fresh, lively relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he said to that church, I stand at the door and knock, and if you'll open the door, I will come in to that man and sup with him and he with me. When, when the glory of Israel, when the glory of God left Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines, the priest's wife was in child labor. And the midwife said, you're going to get this son. And she didn't say a word. All she said was, Ichabod, Ichabod, the glory has departed because the ark had just been taken with the presence of God. And we never want that to be said in heaven or on earth about our church, Ichabod, the glory's departed. The glory is not the beauty of the building. The glory is not the beauty of the members. The glory is not the prosperity of the members. The glory is our love of Christ and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why there is a church. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. What was that rock? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon Peter, son of Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed that unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That is what we want about this church. Oh, let's renew our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. When the subject matter comes up that it's going to be more pointedly, more focusedly about Christ from the pulpit, look forward to it. Embrace it. Or we will have an organization here that is no longer an organism because the Spirit has left the body and we're a corpse. And you know what? If we're not careful, He'll leave us so that we don't even know what's happened to us. It's a, it's a sickening, scary situation. So remember, from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. Let's give the Lord our best every time that we have an opportunity to do so. So we are going to do that this coming Saturday. We are going to gather around deep water. And we are going to celebrate the the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate His mercy to us 
in 35 years of showing us so much truth, including the incarnate sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll celebrate it, and we'll celebrate it in style by the grace of God. Look at Hebrews 13 and verse 10. Let's grab another piece of furniture. Hebrews 13, 10. I'm almost out of time. I told you I wasn't going to go long. I'm not going to. I can, I can end wherever I want to because I'm not going to come near to exhausting this subject. I have, I've built a vocabulary of furniture and fixtures in the New Testament church that's a little ridiculous. But I had a great deal of pleasure doing so. Here's one that I, here's one that we got to be careful about. Do you know why? And I'm sorry for those of you that are watching the video that I'm now out of sight. We've got plants up here at the front instead of this. Do all of you understand one of the reasons why? You know, this table says on it, do in remembrance of me. We have a table over here. Why don't we have it in front like every other church? Because it's not an altar. Right. Have you ever heard a Baptist call the table at the front of the sanctuary the altar? Oh, it makes me cringe. I wonder if they're going to have the Mass. Why would you call it an altar? It's a stupid table. It could be a picnic table and the Lord wouldn't care. As long as it's holding something up. That's all the reason you have a table for. But brethren, we have an altar. Watch this. Thank you, Lord. I love your word so much. Hebrews 13 and verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Do you know what Paul told these Hebrew Christians? We have an altar. We New Testament Christians have an altar that those Jews, those Levites, those priests that are back there in that magnificent temple in Jerusalem, they don't have any right to get near our altar. Because our altar is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and made the one perpetual final sacrifice for sins and they have no right to it because they're still in love with animal blood and the superstition of the carnal religion of Moses. We have an altar. More, I got a bunch of material on that, but brethren, I'm, I'm so far behind. Uh, can we go to Nehemiah chapter 8? I'm about to quit. We just want to celebrate. We want to celebrate. I don't want to tire you out today. We're not going to meet on Wednesday. I'm going to energize you, the Lord willing, and the Lord helping me for next weekend. And we want to rejoice today. What is a church? What is the glory of a church? The value of a church? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. This is another piece of furniture that's in a church. We, do we have a pulpit in this church? Yes, we have a pulpit. Okay, look carefully. I'm going to read the words to you again. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Strictly speaking, what is the pulpit up here? Is it this thing? Is it this thing? Yes. Why is this thing important to get me up high enough for you to see me open this? Because of verse 5. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Look what's in parentheses. For he was above all the people. How did he get above all the people? He was on one of these. So we get on one of these and we use one of these just to hold this thing so I don't have to hold it myself. It's a pulpit. But what do we use the pulpit for? Is it for storytelling? Is it for Tim Tebow to come in here and tell us that he was a pretty good college player and totally flunked as a professional football player? What is the pulpit for? Is it for women to get up here and tell us how much the deaconesses have collected? What's the pulpit for? To read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and to give the sense and to cause them to understand the reading. What is this thing called in any other setting? Beautiful. Lectern or podium or stand. When it's called a pulpit, what kind of a building is it in? A church. Because it's designed to get a minister up, not to be worshipped, but for you to see him open the book of God and to read it to you. And so the pulpit of this church is always going to be this. And it's going to be about Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. So much more could be said and more will be said. A little oil over your mattress in the morning. Solomon, Zerubbabel's, Ours, constructed by whom? The Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. What's the foundation? The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ Himself. What foundation did the wise master builder lay, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What are we not going to build on that foundation? Wood, hay, and stubble. What are we going to build? Gold, silver, and precious stones. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen.